Support for Industry Focus comes from Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, work with one that has your best interests in mind. Use Rocket Mortgage for a transparent, trustworthy home loan process that's completely online at quickenloans.com fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your healthcare show host, Christine Hargis, and it's March 29th. After two weeks of no Todd Campbell, I am happy to welcome back my usual podcast partner calling into Full HQ. Hi, Todd. Hi. Yay, I'm back. <laughs> What's been going on with you these past couple weeks? Um. Wow, I haven't known what to do with myself on Wednesdays. Aww. Uh, I've, got, I've got all this extra time. No, uh, you know, great shows, by the way. And um, if listeners didn't get a chance to uh, tune into them, go on back and check them out because it's they're really interesting it's interesting stuff yeah Todd thank you for the the uh, approval um, I did really miss doing the show with you but it was kind of interesting to step outside of the box and film with some different people and get a different take on the healthcare sector well it, you know also Christina allowed all sorts of news flow to pile up I mean we've got so <laughs> much stuff that we can talk about today right seriously yeah guys listening when I emailed Todd to be like what should we talk about today he and I, between the two of us, we came up with so many different news items because it's been a pretty busy couple of weeks for healthcare. So today's episode is going to be a little bit grab baggy. We're basically going to get you guys up to speed on what you need to know in healthcare from all sorts of recent news. So the first thing that we wanted to cover, and this is probably the most widely covered news item, is the American Healthcare Act, which is sort of known as Trump Care. Which, for some background, it's relatively well known that Trump had pledged during his campaign to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act, which is Obamacare. And with a Republican majority in Congress, it seemed like a no-brainer that a replacement bill would pass pretty quickly. But it turns out that wasn't the case. Right. They kind of somewhat, I, I guess you'd say somewhat surprisingly. I mean, it was it was something he said he wanted to tackle early on, but I think some people were thinking he wouldn't wait. He wouldn't jump right in and make this the first one that he tried to push through uh, Congress. I'm not sure now that the AHCA, getting ahead of ourselves, uh, is back on the side burner, uh, whether or not he regrets that choice or not. But I mean, from from an investor standpoint, you know, we need to, to be able to take a look at what the AHC, AHCA would have done. Um, and and what the implications now are on different uh, industries within healthcare uh, now that it, it's it's no longer on the table, right? And there are a whole bunch of different parts of healthcare that p- could be touched by this, um, as well as some companies that you might think would be impacted. And in discussing it, we've kind of decided might not actually be that impacted. Yeah, it's the okay. So we'll, we'll go through each one of these industries um, relatively quickly and, and hit the pros and the cons. But just to back up for one quick second, so you, so that you know our listeners have an understanding of what the AHCA would have done. There were a few different pieces of the puzzle, and I think that's important to understand uh, prior to diving right into them. One, it would have changed how um, uh, how consumers can buy their insurance. No longer would they be getting subsidies based on income; they would receive tax credits. Those tax credits uh, range from $2,000 per individual to $4,000 per individual with a $14,000 cap. And I think by most accounts, independent sources, Kaiser family, et cetera, uh, for for many people that would have caused uh, insurance costs or their out-of-pocket costs at least to, to climb. And as a result, that had many people projecting that up to 24 million people would have lost their insurance uh, over time if the AHCA had gone through and had passed. 
So because of that, uh, one of the areas that was under a lot of pressure was hospitals, right? Um, as you may remember, Obamacare kind of insulated hospitals against bad debt expense or the amount that they have to write off in charity care because, I mean, think about it, right? The more people that are insured, the less people showing up to emergency rooms without the ability to pay. Right, and those people are extremely expensive to the hospitals. So Yeah, it's billions and billions of dollars, right, Christine? Right, and so industry-wide, if you're looking at uh, those levels remaining still at Obamacare levels, that's a net win for the hospitals. Right, and you saw a lot of those stocks just jump um, once the news came out that they weren't going to vote on it on that Friday. The hospital stocks reacted obviously very positively because there was less of a likelihood of them having to now take big write-offs again uh, like they were doing in the pre-Obamacare days. That being said, on an individual stock basis, I don't have anything to recommend here. I think there's a lot of uh, debt associated with hospital stocks. I think they've got a lot of other issues that they're trying to deal with. So I, I don't think I'd run out necessarily and buy any one particular hospital stock on this news. So another part of this bill that was talked about a good bit is Medicaid. Uh, the Medicaid expansion was something that Republicans really strongly pushed against. And actually, the latest on that news, I saw just this morning that Kansas voted today to actually expand Medicaid, which is incredibly surprising because that is such a red state. But um, the governor is probably still going to veto it. But still, interesting stuff going on here. How would you view that through the lens of an investor? Well, I think for, for, for the most part, the big winners there were the, were the Medicaid insurers who make their money by running state Medicaid programs. Like What the AHCA would have done is it would have capped enrollment in 2020 and then block granted money to the states. And the states would have been responsible for finding the savings and figuring out who they wanted to insure. And as a result, that could have caused fewer people uh, to be on Medicaid rolls. Now, Molina, Centene, these insurers, they make their money based on how many people are enrolled in these programs. So obviously, if the HCA had passed, that would have been a net loss for them. Now that it's off the table, that's good for them, especially now, like you said, some of these other states continue to warm up to the idea of allowing more people to get into the Medicaid uh, program. And really quickly, before we move on from this news segment, what are some companies that are surprisingly neutral? Neutral drug makers. I mean, they, they would have you know, lost, if AHCA had passed and an insurance uh, rate would have climbed, then they would have seen a drop off in demand. But they also have to pay um, you know, billions of dollars in fees to participate uh, because of Obamacare. So that's kind of a, you know, a little bit of a wash. It's probably a, a net positive, but it's, we'll call it a wash. And then also the big diversified insurers, the guys like United ha Healthcare and Anthem, kind of a wash for them. They do business in the Medicaid size. They do business on the, the uh, uh, Obamacare side. Um, they've been losing money on Obamacare. So that would have been a win if they were able to, you know, redo their plans so they'd become much more profitable. But again, the hit to Medicaid might have offset some of those uh, those gains. All right, great. So news item number two relates to something that we had teased in our Valentine's Day show, which is that Amgen had some data about their cholesterol-lowering medication. It's a PSK9 inhibitor. We said that there was going to be a data readout in March. Indeed, there was. So we figured we owed you guys some follow-up. Yeah, and I think that by all, you know, most people, if you look at the, just the raw number, they say, wow, that's a pretty good finding. I mean, essentially what they found is that they, that using Repatha, which is a drug that helps lower bad cholesterol levels, reduce the risk of things like heart attack and stroke by about 20%. 
uh, versus a placebo. And that, that's a pretty significant when you think about how many millions of people are affected by uh, heart disease. Right. So at first glance, that's positive data, right? You know, this is exactly what they were looking for. They did this very long-term cardiovascular risk study. There were 27,500 people in it, and they waited years until 1,630 of them had a heart attack or another cardiovascular disease-related event. And they get this number that says definitively, statistically significantly, our drug does lower the risk. And yeah, yet, it was a snooze fest for investors, yeah. right? It was super interesting. So why did that happen? Yeah, you know, and I think that really what it came down to is there's a there's a couple different things. If you include hospitalization in the metric, the net benefit falls to about 15%. Okay, so, okay, maybe that's not as big of a needle-moving number as, as people would have liked to have seen. Again, huge study, though, and, you know, obviously we're talking about saving people's lives, so we don't want to diminish that. That being said, if you look at news that have come out of other companies on other drugs that have also shown that they reduce the risk of cardiovascular events, it really hasn't translated into a tremendous uptick in the sales of those drugs. Yeah, it's kind of crazy when you look at some examples like, say, Eli Lilly's diabetes medication Jardians also showed a cardiovascular benefit. The drug sold just over $200 million last year, which sounds like a lot of money, but in the world of drugs, it's really not. And they're... Yeah, for a huge patient population too, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the diabetic population is enormous. And I I think something that could be really driving the shortfalling for uh, this optimism about Repatha is that it's still so expensive. It's $14,000 a year. Even with Amgen potentially thinking about doing a money-back guarantee if the drug doesn't lower your overall healthcare costs, something to keep in mind is... There's not really a reason for insurers, as far as financial incentives go, to pay up front to try to reduce long-term risks. And that's messed up, but like when you look at the financials, if I have to pay $14,000 a year now, and maybe down the road you won't have a very expensive heart attack, statistically, you're probably not going to still be on that same insurer at, at that time. I mean, you you go through a bunch of different insurers in your life, so why would one want to pay to save another one money? And it's it's so cynical, but it's problematic. Yeah, and a lot, a lot of these events are probably happening in people once they get into their uh, mid to late 60s and beyond, and when they'd be on Medicare. Um, so I, that's absolutely a, a great point, and it's a sad in a way. Um, I think that the what we need to recognize is that Amgen is going to work with payers to try and figure out some sort of a payment system that makes sense. Right now, more than 80% of prescriptions for this drug are being rejected. So they've got to figure some way out to get this drug into the hands of consumers and to turn a profit on it. And I don't know if that means you know even more significant cuts in pricing or, or like you said, these other payment schemes or whatnot. Um, but I, there's, there's, there's question mark. I guess from an investor standpoint, you're going to have to watch the next couple quarters and see whether or not there is a big pop in sales. This, uh, as it stands today, I think this drug is selling around $240 million annual run rate. So you want to watch and see whether or not that annualized run rate picks up in the next couple quarters. Agreed. Next news item that we're going to move on to involves Ionis Pharmaceuticals. But first, support for industry focus comes from Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, it's important to work with someone you can trust and who has your best interests in mind. With Rocket Mortgage, you'll get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Don't waste time searching through stacks of paperwork. With Rocket Mortgage, you can securely share your financial information to get a mortgage approval in minutes. 
You can even adjust the rate and length of your loan in real time to make sure you get the mortgage solution that's right for you. Whether you're looking to buy a home or refinance your existing mortgage, you can lift the burden of getting a home with Rocket Mortgage. Skip the bank, skip the waiting, and go completely online at quickandloans.com fool. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. Thanks again to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans for supporting our podcast. So, on to IONIS. They recently announced, I believe it was earlier this week, that they are spinning off their lipid disorder subsidiary. Yeah, Axia is going to be the name of the new company, and it's going to IPO. And so, you know, individual investors will be able to go out and buy stocks specifically in this company that's going to be working on uh, drugs that can basically, again, <clears throat> improve cardiovascular outcomes. They're focusing on rare lipid disorders. So, you know, they've got a couple of interesting compounds. This is this is a weird decision, um, though, in my view, by Onus, if you think about it. I mean, they, it's not like Ionis needs the money um, by IPOing this company to be able to facilitate commercialization of their drugs or research on these drugs. You know, so they're spinning it out in, in, in lumping all of these uh, lipid disorder drugs together. And and I'm I'm not entirely sure, you know, what the why the why they're doing. It, to tell you the honest truth, especially because they will keep some stake in Axia, which and this is so frustrating to me. But in the S1, which is the IPO documentation, there are literal blank spots in it when it comes to some of the the specifics and the numbers involved in this IPO, such as what sort of stake Ionis is going to keep in the new spinoff. Right, right. I mean, you see, it says somewhere in there that they're, they're, the goal is to. I, I think that the language, if you read it, it looks like they're going to split whatever they collect in money, both in milestones from Novartis, because there's a deal that goes alongside that XC is going to end up having uh, a collaboration deal uh, with Novartis on a couple of these drugs. Um, and, and I think they're going to end up splitting a lot of the money with Ionis. So, I mean, Ionis is giving up 50%, let's say, of its exposure to these drugs to launch this. You know, separate entity, and they're collecting a hundred million dollars in in IPO raise, and I don't know. I, it's 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 kind of a weird situation to me on why they're doing it this way, uh, rather than just owning the drugs 100% outright and doing the collaboration themselves with the artists. Yeah. I mean, and that, that's something that Ionis is very good at, is pursuing collaborations. And Novartis is already fully partnered here. And now that they're doing the spinoff, um, Novartis has agreed to a $50 million funding commitment of that $100 million IPO. Well, actually, it's going to be concurrent. So it's going to be an additional. Oh, you're right. So I mean, think yep, about it. Right. You could get it up with, a, I think it's probably like 150 gross of, <clears throat> gross of fees and stuff that they'll have to pay out to the brokers to get this done. Um, but, you know, that's not going to be enough money. Yeah, it's by not. Their, by their own account, uh, in the S1, it says, even taking into consideration the IPO and the money from Novartis, we're still going to need to raise money to commercialize their lead drug, which is Volanesor, I can't say this, this is like an alphabet soup, <laughs> Volanesorsen, uh, which is their lead candidate, which just put up good, we'll call it good, good phase three numbers for a rare condition that affects up to 5,000 people globally called FCS. Again, alphabet soup to break out the abbrevi- you know, <laughs> longer term. I think investors just need to know that it's a relatively small indication uh, without a lot of different uh, treatment options. Uh, and of course, that could obviously begin generating out revenue for this company as soon as next year. But it's not a slam dunk that it's going to pass uh, through the FDA because there were 
um, some safety concerns related to playlist accounts. And you know that could be that 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 could be what maybe that's why they're spinning this out, right? They want to insulate themselves From the against risk. this drug you know, running into a stumble. Yeah, I I totally agree. Lots of uh, unanswered questions here. I know personally, I will definitely be looking in Ionis's next conference call to see some of the details behind this. I mean, it kind of drives me nuts to see those literal blank spaces in the the S one. Um, so it will be interesting to watch both that and more data coming out of the four different trials that this IPO money will fund. So- yeah, and the other thing that investors should know too is that okay, so let's let's assume best case scenario that. Uh, Volanus source uh, gets the FDA nod and hits the market for this small patient population of 3,000 to 5,000 people globally, right? Good news, right? So they go out, they start marketing this drug. A, there's no guarantee that this drug, depending on how they price it, is going to get prescribed, become a commercial hit of any of, of any you know magnitude. Uh, also, B, you have to recognize that one of the drugs that's t- partnered up with Novartis actually has the same mechanism action, same target and everything. It's just a little bit more advanced. And if that drug is successful, it means that, I mean, why can why would doctors still end up prescribing uh, Volan exactly. instead of this other drug down the road? Yeah. And you do so, see frequently companies cannibalize their own drugs by making even better versions. But when the new version is a partnered drug versus the older version, which was wholly owned, that's not good financially. Correct. So, last news item of the day involves Tessero, who I believe we've talked about on the podcast before as well. And they announced that their drug, Zijula, was approved early. Yeah, this was, I guess if you look at it, it's not a complete and utter surprise because it's not, you know, regulators have already approved two different drugs that have the same uh, target as Zajula does. So maybe they, you know, very confident, obviously, um, in their understanding of what these drugs do. Uh, but yes, an early approval, the, the decision was supposed to come on June 30th. Instead, we got it uh, more than three months ahead of time. And that's great news for patients because this is the first one of the drugs of its class that can be used uh, right after you know, patients first respond to a, a platinum-based chemotherapy. This is for ovarian cancer patients. Right. So it's a maintenance drug for these patients. And I think besides just the early approval, another thing that caused the the very positive reaction to this news is that it was a wider-than-expected label. And it was approved for ovarian, fallopian tube, and primary peritoneal cancer patients with their disease in complete or partial response to a platinum-based chemotherapy. And even more importantly, <clears throat> it was approved for use in either BRCA-positive or non-BRCA-positive patients, which is a first for drugs of this class. Um, you know, we're talking about something called PARP inhibitors, with which, Christine, you and I have talked about before on the show. Um, and PARP inhibitors, basically what happens is that cancer cells, once they get damaged by chemotherapy, they can use, those nasty little beasts, they can use the human body's repair system to repair the damage that's been caused to their cells. This helps stop that. Um, so, you know, these drugs have been shown in trials to be very effective at, uh, pro, uh, at, at, at crimping cancer. Um, and in trials, this drug specifically, specifically uh, did a great job of increasing the amount of time or, you know, that it takes for the disease to recur. So prolonging uh, progression-free survival versus standard of care today. And that is so huge for ovarian cancer patients because, you know, 85% of ovarian cancer patients end up relapsing. 
And as they go through additional platinum-based chemotherapy uh, 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 treatments, the duration of the benefit um, continually shrinks. So, you know, being able to insert a drug early on in the use, in this case in the second line setting, is a big win for patients and potentially, um, you know, a big win for the company. I mean, I, you know, PARP inhibitors right now are racking up sales of north of 200 million a year. Uh, obviously, this is that's for a much more limited patient population because they're only approved right now for BRCA positive patients. Um, so this could be, you know, a nine figure drug. Uh, at least, you know, within the first year or two. Right. And when you consider that it's also being studied in the first line setting, then those numbers could get even bigger potentially. Mm-hmm. They could get bigger because of the expansion to those uh, first line setting. And they could also get bigger because PARP inhibitors are being studied in other types of cancer. So breast cancer and pancreatic cancer. And, and now, Tessero just reported they're going to study it in non-small cell lung cancer. So PARP inhibitors may end up having a lot uh, of, of value in being used as part of combination therapy across a lot of different cancer types. But that doesn't mean, Christine, that Tessero is 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 the, the de facto winner in this class. Right, because they're not the only player in this space. You also have other players such as AstraZeneca. They have a PARP inhibitor called Limparza, which was also... It, it very successful in showing the same sorts of effects that Zajula was able to. So, as an investor, how are you looking at the competition there? Well, I think it, you're really, it's a wait and see game here. I mean, Tesoro's run up remarkably um, on, on excitement surrounding uh, the launch of its drug. And, you know, you could, you, an argument could be made that, you know, you've got to now see sales uh, come in to back up that valuation. You know, AstraZeneca just announced this week that the FDA has accepted uh, for review, priority review, its application to expand Linpars's um, uh, use to include maintenance therapy. Um, probably would just end up in BRCA patients, but I mean, the, it a lot will depend on the label. Um, and, and obviously, that takes away a little bit of the advantage that Tesoro has, and that, that approval could come as soon as September. You know, so there's all sorts of movement that's going to be going on next year or two in this class of drugs, and that could very well shift the landscape as far as market share. So investors should keep, you know, a cautious approach to all of these companies because I, I don't know if it's necessarily clear who the who the winner will ultimately end up being. If Tesoro can prove that it has enough unique its drug has enough unique uh, properties that it's not a class-wide effect, then obviously it would be the best-selling drug because it can be used in both BRCA and non-BRCA patients. And, you know, again, you know, being able to treat 100% of the patients is way better than being able to treat the 15 to 20% that happen to be BRCA positive. For sure. So the waters are still a little bit muddy on this one as far as the investing takeaway goes. But for patients, this is undisputably great news that PARP inhibitors are gaining approval and picking up steam. Again, they block tumors' ability to repair DNA. That is fantastic from a patient perspective. And we will definitely be rooting for all of these companies to succeed from that standpoint. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks a bunch to our producer, Austin Morgan. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Hargis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on!